Why don't we open our time in prayer, and then I'm going to have Scott come up in a moment and uh, walk through the disciplines with you guys, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, just the privilege of being able to breathe your air again this morning and uh, eat your food and drink your drink, Lord. You uh, are giving to us, even now in this moment, what we do not deserve, and we just want to humble ourselves and remind ourselves of that. And, um, and Father, what you have given um, us goes far, far beyond these creature comforts, Lord. You, you gave to us your Son. Uh, you gave us your very self in your Son. And what we did to him as a race is we, we killed him. We did not want him. We did not receive him. Instead, we crucified him. We did that because of our sin and our rebellion in our hearts, but you did it because of your great grace and your kindness and your love for sinners like us. And the result of that um, is that our sins are taken out of your sight. We are forgiven. We are washed. We are cleansed. And we find now that um, we have a life that we never had before. We have been born from above by your good kindness towards us. We find that we are adopted children that belong to the God of the universe. And we find that um, in this new life that we live, we have equipping to fight against sin that we never had before. And so, Father, as we stand where we are and we look back, we, we are so grateful that we are not where we once were. And Father, as we turn and we consider and face what still has yet to happen and occur and come to us, as we consider what heaven will be when you cross that threshold of death, or if you come back, Lord Jesus, when we consider what awaits us there, um, we're not content. We want to be with you. We want to see you. We want to be in your presence. We want to finally be made into that glorified condition that you have awaiting us, that is promised to us, that is as good as here. Uh, you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit of promise, and we just now await your coming or death. Father, today, as we look at your word and as we fellowship together and as we um, strive together as men at Grace Bible Church, we pray, Lord, that you would draw near to us that we would not seek words without the God of the word in mind, but that we would, in seeking your word, we would look for you. And that we would draw near to you, and you would draw near to us and help us, Lord. So we commit to you our morning, and we ask for your grace on us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, a couple of uh, things here before I have Scott come up first. Um, I am going to make uh, a little bit of an appeal to you men if, uh, to, in regards to next generation ministry. Um, in the last less than two weeks, four babies have been born in this church. Thanks, Josh. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> you did your part. Josh, Josh's wife, is one of those. Uh, so what that does, you, you've, you've probably heard this, but what that does is that takes a, a worker, perhaps, if the husband and the wife were working in next-generation ministry, it takes two out, and it adds a child. 
because the mom and dad take a little break to get away from that. And so what what we have children's ministry wise is, is we've got you know a room to to hold babies. And here's the great thing as a guy, you never get to change a diaper. <laughs> I mean, is that more grace from God or what? I mean, we just have all the women change diapers. You just get a hold of them, and when you sense something's not right, you just hand them off. <laughs> that's how it works here. You see, that's really good. So we got babies that can be held. Uh, you can get down on the ground and crawl around with, with toddlers and walkers. Uh, you get to play with, tr- with trucks. And things like that with little little guys, and, and I don't know what you do with the girls, but um, trucks and things like that. And um, then you can also, uh, what I really encourage you to think about and not be afraid of, is actually teaching little ones. Um, last week I got to teach the sevens and the eights um, with my wife and one of my daughters, and um, guys, it was so much fun. Um, it was so encouraging. The, 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 the curriculum that we use, um, I looked at, we taught Matthew 2 on the birth of Jesus and King Herod and, and his attempt to, to kill Jesus and all the babies of Bethlehem in the surrounding area. And the material that they gave, I, I didn't even have to go look at anything else. It is so sufficient. And I know not every lesson is created equal in that curriculum. I understand that there are some that are weaker than others in terms of what they provide for you uh, to study from. But guys, it's given to you in a packet like this. And, and do you have to spend some time? Yes, you do. It's the Word of God. And there's precious little souls. Um, but you get to, on a three-week or a four-week rotation, you get to, you get, you don't have to, you get to bring the Bible and the gospel to little ones. And you get to live it out before them. And if anybody in the church should do that, it should be who? The men. Okay? I just want you to know, I went through the list of guys who are here tonight with Tom Angstead, who kind of helps oversee. And I know every single one of you who are not in NGM. And by the end of the day, like, oh. and I know where you live. You're like, wow, oh, gotcha, Scott. Really a strong one. That smells spiritual. Yeah, it does Wow. And all of you who are truly saved by the end of the day. Uh, would you just prayerfully consider that? And um, Derek over here, D-Rob, is, is uh, in NGM. Who else is in NGM in here? we got several guys who do serve in here. They would love to talk with you about it if you want to hear um, what, it's, what it's like. Um, but I just encourage you. One of the best things that happened to me when I was in college, I was a, a new believer, and I was at a, a, uh, the church that I really started to grow at. One day, our college pastor came and he said, you know what, for the next nine weeks, we're not going to meet on Sunday morning for Sunday school. And we were, all of us, like, we're a group this size. We're like, what are you talking about? And he said... I want you to go serve in the church this hour for the next nine weeks. And so I went and I, I held babies. So I'm this college-age guy wearing a smock thing that I had to put over. And it was so good for me to do that. It, um, it helped me to see a very important, to watch parents come after church and pick up their kids and know that they were able to sit and hear the word of God. And that I helped make that be possible. That was really encouraging. And so I just encourage you to consider that ministry. Um, Look, here's the day when you need to be afraid in this church. It's not the day when you're being 
challenge to serve an NGM. The day when you need to be afraid is when this church doesn't have any babies anymore. I know some churches in the valley where they don't have any kids. And the church is dying because there's not a new generation coming behind it. That's when we need to be afraid. Right now, God is blessing this church in ways that at, at the young, you know, with babies that I've never, I mean, we've always had this. Travis, have we always had babies? But this is crazy. Not, not, not always, but well, yeah, once you finally got married and uh, babies. Um, so, but this is, um, this is like unprecedented. So would you please consider that? Uh, just pray about that. And if you want to talk more about that, I'd love to have you ask me or, or D-Rob over here or anybody else who serves. Also, some of you have expressed interest in helping to clean up afterwards. If you are willing and able to help with that today, if any of you have, even if it's just 15 minutes, if you have 30 minutes of time, we'd love to give you a little task to do. Just come see me afterwards and we'll uh, tackle the, uh, the building here. There's going to be a group that comes and cleans today to get ready for tomorrow. But there are some things that we can do that will help along with that. Okay? All right. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Scott. Scott, why don't you come on up? Yeah, let me just second what Scott said about next generation ministries. Uh, regardless of what age you're working with, this is a gospel opportunity. If you want to talk about a, a field that is ripe, um, think about sharing the gospel with kids who are already hearing that their house, in their homes during the week, you get the opportunity to water um, what's already been planted. So praise God for that. Hey, I wanted to thank you all for being here. Um, you know, we say this every week, but when you're here this morning and you're sitting here and you're listening to us and then you're in your discussion groups, and you're listening together um, with one another, you're actually doing something really, really important. And we, I think we shared the first week, Ephesians 4.16, the body when it's functioning properly, causes the growth in the body. So when you're here um, and you're participating in this group, you are causing the growth of those guys that are around you. When you're in your discussion group and you're sharing what your reading plan is like and how it's going, and when you're talking about how you're waging war with sin, um, you are helping the guys next to you grow, and they're helping you. So thanks for coming. Keep it up. Um, last year was great, and the guys were faithful all through the year. And, um, the guys grew in a lot of ways, so thanks. If you have your notebook, turn it backwards and look at the back cover. We're going to look at a few things real quickly. Um, I want to go through the disciplines and what they are by way of reminder, and then I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about um, prayer life and specifically in that God is creator and how that affects our prayer life. And then I want to talk about one of the disciplines. Uh, hopefully we'll say a few words about each one of the disciplines each of the next eight or ten weeks that we're together. So we have five disciplines that we're, we're, we're emphasizing here in, on Saturday mornings. What these five are, are five areas that are very, very important for a man to, to understand in his life. And the first deals with his own heart. The reason why it's first is because everything else flows from the heart. We're going to have a message later this year from Jacob Hamla, and it's going to be about Proverbs 4.23, and the heart is, is um, the place from which the springs of life flow. Everything flows out of what's happening in our heart. So we want to be men who attend to our heart, and we attend to our heart by meeting alone with the Lord. Um, not sitting with the Lord and, and reading quickly through the passage, but just actually meeting with the Lord in whatever structure that looks like. We attend to our heart when we meet with the Lord, allow his word to speak to us, and we speak back to him. And then we take the fruit of that 
into our living situation, whatever it is. If you're living with somebody, if you're living with a wife, if you're living with parents, if you're living with kids, if you're living with roommates, um, you have the opportunity to take what you have done to shepherd your own heart into the relationships that God has given you in your life. And that's what the second discipline is. It's your home. Whatever your home situation is, even if you live alone, you have people in your home or you're in homes with other people, you have the opportunity to give to them the fruit of what God has grown in you as you meet with him. And when you've done that, and when you're continuing to do that, you're a guy who is ready to step into service in this church. We just talked about Next Generation Ministries. You can put a warm body in Next Generation Ministries, and in some sense, a warm body can hold children in the nursery. I do that. I do that once a month. I'm doing that tomorrow, and um, that's good. But what really happens, what's really a benefit, is when a guy who's been shepherding his heart, and he's living rightly in his own home, and there's fruit in his own life, and there's fruit in his own family, he steps in front of children, or he steps into a small group leader position, or he steps into something here as a discussion leader, he's ready to bring fruit to a lot of people. Not just the few people that he lives with, but a lot of people. There's 10-ish people in our discussion groups. Um, you're ready to bless these people. And so um, it's important. It all starts with the heart. It starts with taking what you've learned, moving it into your home, and then carrying forward from that into ministries here in this church. And as you do that, we want all of us to be aiming at the deacon qualifications. When you read through the deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, you see the kind of man that describes the kind of man who is already shepherding his heart. He's a man of dignity. He's a man who's not double-tongued. He's a man who's not addicted to much wine. He's a good manager of his home and lots of other things. He doesn't get that way by any other way than by shepherding his own heart living it out in his home, serving in the church. And we want men at this church to be men who are always seeking to grow more and more deeply in their walk with the Lord and their knowledge and their understanding of the Lord. We want men to grow more and more deep in their understanding of how to actually read the Bible. When you've got it open on a page and you're reading through, how do you read the text that's in front of you? How do you read it? How do you recognize, is this poetry? Is this to be read literally? Is this to be read... Um, as some sort of example is this to be read in any other way how do I read my Bible how do I understand what's being read once we understand it we know how to apply it so we want guys to grow and grow and grow build here the next phase of our education here at this church H3 which is now being called the trust and then from there there's Grace Bible Institute and Shepherdology these are all things that we hope are tools that men can use to grow in their understanding of God as you come to understand God more, you come to love him more, your worship of him becomes more genuine, more heartfelt, and all of that. So that is what we want to keep in front of us. Uh, keep those things in front of you. Again, start with your heart. A great, great danger happens when you jump into the middle of that list and try and serve, serve, serve in Discipline 3, or try to lead a small group or something like that. When you have it first, shepherd in your own heart. When you see disasters around you in churches, um, they're very public. All you have to do is look at the media for a little while and you'll see disasters in leadership positions. You'll see moral failures. Uh, inevitably, it starts with a guy who's not already shepherding his heart consistently. So I want to keep those things in front of you. As we talk about shepherding our heart, I want to just talk about one aspect that, that is very, very helpful in doing that, and that is our prayer life. And as we talk about our prayer life, I want to just talk about a couple of things that are very, very helpful 
in assisting a prayer life. And one of those things that's very helpful in understanding and helping your prayer life is understanding God as creator. When you understand who God is as a creator, it's very, very helpful to the rest of your prayer life. Because when we pray, we have things to confess. And when we pray, we have things to praise God for. When we pray, we have things to ask God for. We have all of those things that are going on. And when we understand God as creator rightly, if we walk through that in our mind and our heart as we're praying, it's very helpful when we confess. It's very helpful when we seek help in things. It's very helpful when we want to thank him because we know what to thank him for. So one of the things that helps me to do that is to walk through Genesis chapter 1 when I'm praying. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to page 1? Genesis 1. And this is by no means a formula, but this is something that's very helpful to me when I'm praying. Very helpful to a lot of guys to keep in front of them God as creator. And so you look at who the subject is in the beginning of verse 1. In the beginning, God. So there's a reference to a point in time, and then there's the reference to God himself. And the following 25 verses or so talk about what God has done. It talks about how before there was anything, before there was temperature, and before there was space, and before there was color, and before there was time, God determined that there would be light, and so he spoke it into existence. It's really helpful to remember that God creates by simply speaking. And there was light, and there was morning, and there was evening the first day. Then God determined that there would be an expanse in the midst of all of that light, and so he spoke that into existence. And he called it heaven. And he determined that the waters that were below the expanse would be gathered together in one place, and they would be called seas. And that as the waters were gathered into one place, dry ground would appear. He spoke that into existence, and vegetation appeared. And there was evening and there was morning on the third day. And then the light that had been in existence for three days began to take shape. He spoke shape and formed into it in the form of a greater light to rule the day and a lesser light to rule the night. And then he created the stars also. There's just that little phrase, oh, he created the stars also. Stars with a temperature and a size and a spatial orientation and a movement that we can't even begin to comprehend. Uh, as I walk through that, I'm, I'm reminded of how powerful the God is that I'm going to be praying to. That he, he has a large capacity if he's able to speak into existence these things that are beyond the sight and the reach of the naked eye. So when I'm asking for help... I'm reminded that I'm, I'm praying to a God who, who spoke into existence bodies of iron that are flaming hot at 5,000 degrees that I can't even comprehend. So I've got this problem that I'm praying about, and I'm remembering, well, this is who the God is that I'm praying to. So he works on a very macroscopic scale, and then he decides to work on a microscopic scale. And on the next day, he, he says, let the waters teem with living creatures, each after their own kind. He's a God of order. And so you have seahorses and smaller things than that and smaller things than that. And anybody who studied any biology, which is not me, knows what those things are and knows what God did. <laughs> and the large things that, that live in the water that breathe air, the large things that, that don't, that, that survive with water running over their gills, each one of them after their own kind. And then he said, let there be creatures in the air to fill the air. And where did they roost? They roosted in the trees that he created two days earlier, each after their own kind. And I'm reminded that God is a God of order. He's got all of this figured out. He does things according to his plan, and his plan is right and good. 
And so there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. Then on the sixth day, he said, let the earth be covered with creatures, the creeping of every kind, each after its own kind, and livestock and cattle, each after its own kind. So everything you see in front of you, whether it's creeping along or walking or flying or swimming, it's there because God created it. And he created it according to his own design and his own schedule. And then he said, okay, let's make man in our own image. So the triune God decides to make man in his own image. And he does. He forms man out of the dust of the earth in his own image. He doesn't speak man into existence like he does to everything else. So man is different because he's formed out of the dust of the earth and he's made in God's image. And that reminds me that I'm different than everything else around me. That I'm made in God's image so I can bear his image and I need help bearing that image. If I get all of that straight before I start praying about things, that's going to help my praise life and my worship life. How do I actually worship God? Well, I worship him with a right understanding of how large he is and how powerful he is and how he speaks things into existence. That helps my my confession when I understand how holy he is and how pure he is and I see myself. I see what God creates and then I see what I create. That helps me confess rightly. When I'm asking for things, it's so easy to, if you're like me, it's so easy to just focus on the problem and I see this little patch of time and this little problem that to me is very big. God has this very large time frame. He exists outside of the space of time and space and temperature. And where we are right now is a very important piece, but a very small piece in the course of human history, and God has already ordained all of it. And when I remember that, it helps me to pray rightly about things. It helps me to pray in a way that's not self-centered, but in a way that's God-centered. So that's one way that it helps my prayer life be a little bit more rich and a little bit more meaningful. Uh, by remembering actually who it is that I'm praying to. And it takes time to go through that. Um, and sometimes it's more thorough than others, but it's really, really helpful. When I have things that are at work, I have things here, I have things in my home, I have things elsewhere in my family with, with my parents or anything else, it's very helpful to remember who God is. Uh, our prayer life ends up being less of a wish and more of a confidence in who God is and what he's doing in this world. So keep that in mind. The other thing I want to talk about is one of the deacon qualifications. We, we want to make sure we don't run through these. There's going to be a message on this later in the spring. But today I want to talk just briefly about what it means to be a man of dignity. And a man of dignity is a, is a man, is what you get when a guy reads his Bible. It's what you get when a guy meets with God in prayer and over God's word. Uh, what a man of dignity is, it's, it's a man who has a sober disposition in life. And it's not a guy who wears really nice clothes and he wears leather shoes that are shine and he doesn't step in the mud. That's not it. It's a guy who has a sober disposition and countenance in life because he meets with God. Uh, he sees situations rightly. He understands what's at stake. Um, when he's raising his family, when he's going to work, when he's exercising, when he's socializing, he understands what's taking place. And he's a guy who um, thinks that way because he meets with the Lord. So um, as you review what the deacon qualifications are, again, it's 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, and you think about a man of dignity, um, set aside what may be the conventional definition for dignity, and, and just think about a guy who, who um, has a sober demeanor and a sober bearing in life because he shepherds his own heart before the Lord. Okay, thanks again for being here this morning. Are we going to go to our lesson, or yes. are we going to our discussion? No, we'll go to our Discussion groups, uh, be back at 8.05. Okay, same time, same place as last. We are going to uh, today talk a little bit more about the heart.
with some troubling truths for your heart and some comforting truths for your heart. As you do that and are getting yourself ready, um, let me just draw attention to your chart again. This is what we covered last time. If you don't have one of these, I think there's maybe a couple more in the back if, if you didn't get one last time. But um, I just want to draw your attention to it. If you remember over on the left side, this is the unsaved condition, right? This is what you were without Christ. And we, uh, the Bible basically describes that as an unmixed condition, meaning um, everything in you is all rushing the same direction towards sin and rebellion and hatred of God. Uh, your mind, your heart, your understanding, your attitudes, your deeds, all of them are going in the same grain. There's no mix, right? Uh, we know that in heaven, in the far right side of it, that that also is described by God's word as unmixed, except that's the complete reversal, right? That your mind, your heart, your understanding, your reasoning, your attitudes, your affections, your desires... And even a resurrected body like Jesus. I mean, it's a real body. He ate fish. He, uh, But he had a, a different body, too. He could move through walls. That's going to be interesting. Um, that body, even the, the deeds that go with that body, everything rushing in the same direction, only direction, but completely the opposite, towards holiness, <coughs> towards what is righteous. Um, no mix anywhere in that, right? So... You, Without Christ, you are in an unmixed condition. Someday with Christ, and you have to cross the threshold of death, or Jesus has to come to get to this with Christ condition, where that is unmixed. But there is nobody in this room right now who is in this condition over here, because you're breathing, because you're here. If Christ has indeed saved you, you are in this condition in the middle, which is a mixed condition. It pleased God to keep you in the presence of indwelling sin. Now, when he saves you, you are no longer under the penalty of sin. And when he saves you, you are no longer under the, um, you're no longer a slave to sin. Oh, but sin can still harass you. And you know this. This is your experience if you are in Christ. But what is different is that you now have equipping in the new man. You now have a new set of desires also. And you have an indwelling God in you. You have an indwelling spirit, the spirit of God. You have an indwelling son of God in you. And there is now a, a power within you to say no to sin that was never there before. And that is what pleased God to save you into. You, are, you have a treasure inside an earthen vessel. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4, that's a mixed condition. A clay pot with a treasure inside. Okay, that's a mixed condition. And that's what you're in. And that's what we're going to talk some more about this morning. So um, keep that before you. And we might pull it out here again as we go. Um, take your Bibles. Let's open up to Ephesians 4. <clears throat> we're going to be all over the place today as we look at these truths about our hearts. And as usual, before we really dig into God's word, let's let's go to God and let's ask him for help that we might understand his word and that we might meet with him as we have his word open. Will you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, that is our desire that um, with your Bible open before us, that we would not just see words, but that we would um, meet with you, the God of the word, and that we would learn more about what you have for us and what you have um, said is true about our hearts. So God, open our eyes to see. Do not let us be self-confident in a moment like this, but rather let us look away from ourselves and ask for help from you to understand. So God, we commit ourselves to you. Speak over us now with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, three troubling truths for my heart. Here's the first one. I got a blank for you to fill in. What keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. That's what keeps the sinner from God. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19. You can follow along as I read. Paul says to the believers in Ephesus, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk or you live no longer just as the Gentiles also walk or live. Well, how do these Gentiles, these unbelievers live? I I don't want you to live like them. Here's how they live. They live or they walk in the futility of their mind. Let me tell you more about what I mean by that futility of their mind, Paul says. Being darkened in their understanding. And here's what I mean by them being darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God. Well, why are they excluded from the life of God? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Where did this ignorance come from? Well, that is because of the hardness of their heart. And that's where we're going to focus in here in a minute. And they, those that I just described, Paul could say, having become callous, they have given them, there's only one thing they can do with themselves, with a mind and an understanding and a hard heart like that there's only one thing they can do with themselves what do they do with themselves they give themselves over to sensuality they give themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness now what i want to do is zero in uh, in verse 18 at the end there because of the hardness of their heart that is paul's description of why Unbelievers have a deeply ingrained ignorance. Look at verse 18. Um, They have that ignorance that is in them, and that ignorance that is in them is because of the hardness of heart. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of work backwards up through verse 18, and then we'll put it back together, okay? So let's talk about that ignorance for a minute. That ignorance is not accidental ignorance. It's not um, an ignorance that catches them by surprise, these unbelievers. Okay, not one of them could say, man, I didn't realize that. I didn't know. Um, This kind of ignorance in the scriptures is a planned ignorance. It is purposeful ignorance of God. It is willful, intentional ignorance of God. Um, The illustration that I use for this uh, every time that helps me to think about it is um, it's like the, the, the child who purposefully will not look into mommy's eyes when she's in trouble. I won't look at you. Because that little one wants to be ignorant of the disappointment that she knows is all over mommy's face. I don't want to see it. 
I know it's there, and I do not want to know it. I want to remain ignorant. See, that is a, a willful ignorance. That is a purposeful, intentional ignorance. And that is the condition of the unbeliever. It, it, unbelievers are not going to stand at judgment and say, but I didn't know. No, they do know. Romans 1 says they know. And what they choose to do is suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And this is a willful ignorance. I don't want to know. I know it's there, but I'm not looking. And I won't go there. And the reason that they have that kind of ingrained ignorance is because of their hardness of heart. So um, to describe their ignorance, Paul turns to their heart. It's a heart condition. It's their inward man. It's who they are inwardly before God that is hard. And they want to remain willful, willfully ignorant of God. And it's because their hearts are hard. That, that hardness of heart there means to be dull. It means their hearts are insensible. It means their hearts cannot be penetrated so as to, to feel or to be moved from that current um, condition. And again, to remind you about the heart, what the heart is not. The heart is not a piece of you inside. It is you inside. It's who you are inwardly. So the unbeliever inwardly before God is just hard, dull. And that is the reason why there is this deeply ingrained ignorance in them. Now, move on up a little bit. Remember this hardness of heart, it's the ultimate cause for why they are so deeply ingrained in willful ignorance. And that willful ignorance is the cause of them being alienated from the life of God. Look at verse 18, just a little bit above that. They are excluded from the life of God because of that ignorance. And that ignorance is because of the hardness of heart. So the reason that they are alienated from the life of God is because of that ignorance. And that is the description of what it means to have a reasoning process that is in darkness. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. Well, how is it that they are darkened in their understanding? Well, it's because they are alienated from the life of God. So their understanding is steeped and centered in darkness, spiritual darkness. And that is why, verse 17, the unbeliever's mind has failed him. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk. How do they live? In the futility or the, the, the failings of their mind. What does that mean? Well, they've got a reasoning process that's darkened. Well, where did that come from? Well, it's because they're excluded from the life of God. Well, how did that get there? Well, it's because of the ignorance that is in them. Where did that ignorance come from? A hard heart. And that kind of person only knows how to do one thing. They give themselves over in totality to sensuality for the practice of every kind of evil, of impurity with greediness. You see, that is a description of the unbeliever, and that is an unmixed condition. There is nothing in any of that description where there's any friction against it. Do you see that? From, from the mind to the understanding to the heart to themselves, what do they do with all of themselves? They give themselves over to the practice of every kind of impurity. With greediness, they practice that. And he says to the believer, don't live that way. Right? You can't live that way. The heart of man is just this way, hard, be because of Adam's fall. 
But God also simultaneously warns man to not participate in the hardening of the heart. Go to Hebrews chapter 3 now. Let's just see these verses. These are very important. God in his word from the Old Testament, Psalm 95, into the New Testament, where the writer of Hebrews here is quoting Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3 verse 8 says, do not harden your hearts. That's what he told Israel. Don't harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And by the way, David is the one who is saying this, we think, Psalm 95. So David is saying to his people of his day, don't harden your hearts like the Israelites did way back in the wilderness when they hardened their hearts before God. That's what God is saying. That's what David is saying to the people. Do not harden your hearts. Look at chapter... um, 3 verse 15. He says it again. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Chapter 4 verse 7. He again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just has been said before. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So God warns man to not participate in the hardening of the heart. At the hearing of God's voice in the call of the gospel, do you know what you're asking the sinner to stop doing? What are you asking them to stop doing? Stop hardening your heart. Who you are inwardly before God, stop being so hard. That's what the gospel is confronting. But believer, do you know what? You need to um, beware of this. You still have the ability to what? Harden. Why? Why? Because you're in a mixed condition. Because you still have sin in you. Because you're not here yet. Nobody here in heaven is hardening their hearts. Did you know that? And you're not there. And neither am I. We're right here. And we still have the ability to harden our hearts. Um... Remember, before Christ, all you could do without him was be hard of heart, right? There was no other condition besides that for you. And one day in heaven, you'll only have an inward man who is soft before God all of the time. All of the time. But now, in Christ, you're in a mixed condition in which you must fight against what? Fight against every day hardening your heart. And fight to soften your heart. So... This is a troubling truth for my heart, that my heart can still be hard. So this is a characteristic that's true of the unbeliever, but it's a characteristic that can still be true of me because I have indwelling sin in me. Um, In fact, take a look at chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren. What does brethren mean? Who's he referring to? What kind of people? He's talking to believers. Take care, believers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be what? Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, the deceitfulness of sin will only do one thing in you. It will harden your heart, and you need to be aware of that. Does that make sense? All right. That's a troubling truth for my heart, that what keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. Number two. Second troubling truth. Whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, not belief. 
So number two, your blank is naturally. Whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, not belief. Okay? Hmm. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. We just read that. What the author was addressing here with the church that he wrote to was similar to what Israel continually went through. Uh, he says again, verse 12, Brethren, take care that there will not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another uh, day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, the, the church, believers, must labor to root out this natural inclination to not trust the living God. Um, listen, when, when God saved you, he transformed you. But here's what he did not transform when he saved you. He did not transform the nature of sin. Do you understand that? Sin is the same today in your life by its nature as it was before. It only deceived you when you were an unbeliever. And now as a believer, guess what sin does? Sin didn't reform itself. Sin only still knows to do one thing, and that is to deceive you so that you will be hard. And there are other things that sin does as well. Because of indwelling sin's lingering effects within me and within you, if you do nothing with your heart, what will sin do with your heart? Will sin go over to the corner and cower and say, Jesus died for him, I'm not going to bother him anymore. If you do nothing with your heart, what will sin do with your heart? It's not going to be pretty. If you do not shepherd your heart with the word of God and the gospel, your heart will not rush into belief. Did you know that? Your heart will not rush into... Listen, there's only one heart that does rush into belief all the time. <clears throat> Don't even have to tell it to. It's this heart. This heart over here only knew how to be an unbeliever. This heart, you must labor to continue to trust the Lord in your life with what's going on in your life. There is once and for all faith in which we are declared righteousness, a positional standing on the basis of faith, achieved by faith and faith alone, right? And then there is the daily continual trusting of God that that initial faith opened the door for. And you must continue to be trusting in God in that sense. Go to Luke chapter 24. Here's a great example. Watch what the resurrected Lord had to fight for and address. Luke 24, verse 25. You know the, the, the situation here. Uh, Jesus is raised from the dead. His tomb is empty, uh, but the disciples are still kind of clueless about what's going on. In fact, two of them are walking on a road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and this stranger walks up alongside him. They, uh, Jesus has disguised himself somehow. He, they, they can't identify who he is, and they're having this conversation with him. It's actually kind of a depressing conversation. Uh, there's this guy, you know, um, we thought he was going to redeem Israel, verse 21, but then he died. It's the third day since he died. Some women, though, they said that they saw him alive. That amazed us. Um, but we didn't find his body. They said they saw some angels, claimed that he's alive, but uh, they didn't see him when they went and looked. And resurrected Jesus is saying to them in verse 25, Oh, foolish men! 
slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. You see, the disciples had hearts that were not quick to trust, but rather they were slow to trust. They were slow to believe the Christ-centered, Christ-revealing scripture of the Old Testament. Everything that they had just eyewitnessed, what had they just seen, either if, if not with their physical eyes on their heads, they, they knew this took place. What had they just seen? They saw, they knew that a substitute had just died. Well, they should have known that a substitute just died. They knew that blood was just shed outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it wasn't registering that, that Messiah's suffering was a sacrifice on their behalf. The Old Testament said, he said, wasn't it necessary for Messiah to suffer these things? This is what was written in the scriptures. You see, their hearts were not quick to believe. Their hearts were slow to believe. And the resurrected Christ had to labor. One of the very first labors of love that the resurrected Messiah had to do was help his followers overcome hardness or slowness of heart to believe so slowness of heart to believe is a condition the believer will face because of indwelling sin see sin has not changed sin sin before you uh, were saved only didn't never wanted you to believe listen sin in you now still doesn't want you to believe and trust god Wherever you find sin, you will find it slowly dragging your heart away from trusting the Lord. Think about it. When you choose, when you give in to sin, do you feel like in that moment afterwards, do you feel like your trust in the Lord is really strong? And that's a troubling truth for our hearts, guys. Whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, not belief. If you do nothing, you will not grow in your faith. Okay? Because sin will drag you away. Number three, third troubling truth. Self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. There's your blank. Nearer to God. Self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Let's go to Matthew 15. Now, let's say an unbeliever at some point decides, you know, I, I can do this thing. I'll get religious. So a hard-hearted slow to believe unbeliever decides, you know, I'm going to wrap a robe around this thing and I'm going to be religious. That happens, right? Some of you were that way before God saved you. And we know that the Pharisees were this way. Look at chapter 15 of Matthew, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You're like, wait a minute. No, no, no. Jesus, we're on the offense right now. See, we're coming to you, pinning you down because you're not following our rules that we made up. And Jesus just turns around and tramples them down and says, you're not obeying the commandment of God. They thought they were on offense. And the next thing they know, they're on defense, being smacked. Jesus explains what he means, how they have 
transgress the commandment of God for the sake of their tradition. Verse 4, God said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But here's what you guys have done. Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He, is not, he doesn't have to honor his father or mother. Verse 6. You see, here's what was going on that day. Uh, the son was supposed to be able to take care of the parents. And whatever resources the son had, these guys had come up with a way that they wouldn't have to give it to dad if dad needed it. Oh, dad, <clears throat> I see your need. I know you need to be taken care of. I'd love to do that, but, but I can't. Um, because my resources that I do have, well, I've dedicated them to God. And so I can't use it for you, dad. I'm so sorry. I have to do what's right before God first. And so what they have done is with this rule they made up, they sound, see, they put the robe around them, the lips are talking, the lips are moving, very close to God. I dedicated my stuff to God. Dad, I can't give it to you. Um, and what they have actually done is they have not honored their father or their mother. They broke God's commandment. Verse 6, and by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Jesus said. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips. What would be the honoring of the lips? Oh, I've dedicated my stuff to God. I can't give it to you. But their heart is far away from me. Who came up with that religious rule? Dedicate, just dedicate your cash to God, and then you don't have to give it to your parents. Who came up with that rule? I can honestly say that in all my 11 years of doing this, and I've never heard anybody say that. <laughs> but I bet there was probably a lot of us thinking it. That's funny. Yeah, this, this is the Pharisees, right? This is man-made religion. And what does Jesus think of this man-made religion? Yeah, your lips may be honoring me, but your heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me. This is not worship teaching as doctrines the precepts of men okay so there's your passage so these religious men hope that perhaps god will see their teaching and their rules and their good deeds their tradition and god will be moved to set aside his for theirs wow guys you guys came up with a really i didn't even think about that yeah you know let's set my commandment aside and let's go with yours god never said that to them maybe that's what they're hoping for who knows and they're confident they're innovative they've come up with new rules religious rules they appear very religious but god's assessment of them is that even though they are religious their hearts are far from him verse 8 so think on this with me the hardness hardness of heart keeps the sinner from god or to put it another way the heart falls into unbelief naturally. As sure as an ice cube at the top of a metal slide in August in Arizona will slide down, the, the human heart will just naturally be inclined to unbelief. If that man supposes, though, if it crosses his mind that he wants to be religious and so he's going to wrap some religious practice around his life, apart from God, and, and he wants to do some religious deeds, hoping that God will accept his version of religion over God's commands, that kind of heart is not open to God. That kind of heart is not soft to God. That heart is a hard-hearted God, 
hard-hearted heart that will not believe in God. Because that heart is trusting in self. Well, then what is the sinner's hope? You've got a hard heart. You've got a heart that just won't believe. And even when you try to put some religious duty to it, God says, that heart is far from me. That's not pleasing to me. What is the hope then for a sinner? The The gospel. The gospel. The hope is God. And not just any God, but, but a God who is motivated to act, not on the basis of what he sees in the sinner, but who's motivated to act on the basis of what he is. Right? Think about these two conditions at conversion. Hardness of heart, slowness to believe. You were hard of heart here. You were slow to believe here. What happened here then? Here, on this side over here, without Christ, you were enslaved to hardness of heart. You could do no other bidding except what a hard heart would tell you. And over here, you were enslaved to a heart that just refused to believe, and you could do nothing else except obey an unbelieving heart. What did God do in the regeneration event that you now possess here? (coughs) That slavery has been broken. Now there is another option for you. You don't have to be hard in heart. You don't have to be unbelieving in heart. But you only will fight against that by the power of God, through the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, through the indwelling Son in your life, in fellowship with other believers. You can fight against that. So it's not that you are completely free of a hard heart anymore. But it does not enslave you anymore. Do you understand? If indeed you are in Christ. If indeed you are in Christ. We're still capable uh, of falling into doubt and unbelief. We can still harden our hearts because of the deceitfulness of sin. And we are even capable of having our hearts far from God while our lips make it sound like we were just in his presence. Three troubling truths. Now, I'm going to give you five comforting truths for my heart. And I want you to watch God's interaction with the heart from the beginning to the end. Because, guys, what we're going to basically be looking at is the gospel here. Okay? I want you to see this. God overcomes hardness of heart. God overcomes slowness of heart to believe. And God dispels foolishly offensive self-made religion from the heart. At the cross of Christ, at the empty tomb of Jesus, God creates a new inner man that can see what the sinner's old inner man could not see. Here's your first blank. Number one, God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. Go to 2 Corinthians 4. Number one, God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6. God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And we preach ourselves as your bondservants or as your slaves for Jesus' sake. And here's why. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
so appropriate that Scott earlier talked about um, Genesis 1 and God creating. Um, what, is, what does Paul mean in verse 6 when he said, light, God who is the one who said, light shall shine out of darkness? What is that a reference to? Genesis 1, right? If God shines into our hearts to give spiritual enlightenment, that means that the condition he found our hearts in prior to that is that they were in darkness. And right, that's what we found in Ephesians 4 verse 17, that we are darkened in our understanding. So then what kind of light power or what kind of power light has to come into that dark heart to turn the light on so that one can now see what truth God has for him? What kind of light is it? Well, it is the light power or the power light of God the creator. I mean, think about that. He, he, he makes light appear out of darkness. That kind of power that Scott talked about earlier, it's that kind of power that must penetrate the inner man of the unbeliever and make light be powerful to enlighten that one. How bad, how devastating, and how formidable must our spiritual darkness have been? That the only way to overcome that is God the creator turning the light on. Only God's creator light power can overcome that so that we might, what, verse 5, uh, verse 6, sorry, so that we might have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look, God doesn't sit around and say, hey, you, you're in darkness. When you turn the light on, give me a call. He doesn't ever say that. He doesn't wait because nothing will ever change. Right? Guys, have you experienced this divine power from God in your heart? That the light has come on that you can see and know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a comforting truth that God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. Number two, God cleanses hearts through faith. God cleanses hearts through faith. Go back to Acts chapter 15. This is the Jerusalem Council. Paul has finished one missionary journey with Barnabas and some... Jews who have believed came up to Antioch and started saying some really bad stuff like, well, hey, Gentiles, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Yeah, 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 yeah. Believe Jesus, of course. Believe Jesus, but let me, you have to add to that circumcision, and if, unless you do that, you can't be saved. So this is not, no, these are not Jews who are saying, no, no way, we don't want any Jesus in this, just circumcision, and then you'll be saved. no. These are believers who say, yes, Jesus plus circumcision. But if you don't have the circumcision, you can't be saved. So this is Jesus plus something equals salvation. And that is not the gospel. And Paul and Barnabas traveled down to Jerusalem, or actually geographically for them, up to Jerusalem, um, and had to fight this. Look at verses 6 to 11. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And there had, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. That was Acts 10 with Cornelius when Peter went. And get this, here's what he said. 
God made this determination, this choice. The Gentiles would hear and believe, period. Hear the proclamation of the gospel and they would believe. And God, who knows the heart, God knows what they need inwardly, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So God, apart from Peter, if you remember in that, as Peter's preaching, he gets interrupted in the middle of preaching the gospel, and the Spirit of God just comes in them and indwells the, um, the Gentile believers. And that's God saying, look, I'm testifying that what they have done in believing in me is my spirit goes in them. That's his testimony. And that's what he did to us, Peter says in verse 8. In verse 9, and he made no distinction between us Jews and them Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. It is not Jesus plus something. It is only Jesus, and it is only faith in him. That's grace. How were their hearts? It didn't matter if, if they were Jew or Gentile. The heart was filthy, and it was in need of cleansing. And God says that he is the one who does it. He cleansed their hearts by faith. Matthew 15 made it very clear that self-made religion for the heart does absolutely nothing for the heart. It makes the heart far away from God. So no self-cleansing is ever called for, guys. God never comes to you and says, look, you clean it up. You clean it up and then we'll have a conversation. Never. Your flesh will grab onto that and say, watch what I can do. You'll, you'll, you'll be impressed, God. And God says, no, I won't. There's only one way that I cleanse you, and it's through faith. Faith is that great act of looking away from yourself in order to entirely entrust yourself to God. Faith says, I will not look to myself. I cast myself, everything that I know of myself, I cast it on everything that I know of God. There's the Christian life where you entrust everything that you know about yourself to everything that you know about God. And when you first get saved, how much do you know about yourself and how much do you know about God? Tiny. But you throw yourself on Christ, and guess what? You live 40 years in Christ. How much do you know about yourself? And how much do you know about God? And you're still doing the same thing. You keep learning more about yourself, and it's not pretty. And what do you do? You cast yourself on God, and you're learning more and more about who he is. There's the Christian life. Trusting all that you know of yourself to all that you know of him. As long as you remain in a heart condition where you guys are willing to look to yourself, as long as you stay in a condition where you say, I think I can do this. God, I'm going I'm to try it one more time. As long as you do that, your heart will remain dirty. Because how does God cleanse your heart? Through faith. And that requires the work of God on your behalf. Guys, have you seen your heart go from unclean to clean on the basis of faith alone? There's your hope. It's good news. Comforting truth. God cleanses hearts through faith. Number three, God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. Go to Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Romans 6, verse 17. God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. Let me read it to you, verse 17. 
But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Guys, um, let me shut this door real quick. Just about there, when the women walk back, have to worry about them. You were in this condition. Take up, take up a trusty card over here. You were a slave. Look at verse um, eighteen. You were, you were a slave to sin. When he saved you, having been freed from sin, you became what? Did you become free? Well, yeah, free in what sense? Free from what? Sin. But you became, did you become free? Not in another sense. You became what? So you went from slave to slave. You went from being a slave of sin to now being a slave of God, righteousness, and obedience. That's crazy. People talk about how they're free in Christ. Is it true? Yes. He frees you from the reign of sin in your life. But you need to ask questions about, well, what do you mean by that freedom? Am I... Because now I'm a slave too, right? Jesus is Lord. He's master. And I love it so. Because what I have, I like, um, Devin, I heard it as you were saying as I was walking out the group. Um, what did you say about his commandments? They, they don't cramp your style? Yeah. Yeah, say something about that. That was really good. Can you say that again? Well, I was just, um, I was talking about uh, Psalm 119. Um, and, you know, what, what I learned as we were reading that last week for homework, and um, it was like, you know, these, these things he puts, you know, on us, they actually are for our benefit, they actually are to make us holy and pure, but that's not something, like, we're not going to enjoy, it's not something that's bad, it's not something like, there's just laws there to, to let us fail, you know, it's, it, it doesn't, you know, cramp your style, it's not, you know, oh man, what a shame, it actually is, um, actually is enjoyable, it actually is, uh, yeah, cool. that's good. First John 5, um, John talks about how the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Look, did your what does your flesh think about the commandments of God? What is sin? <laughs> Indwelling sin, and you think about the commandments of God. You got to be kidding me, right? That's true. That there's an element of that within you, but you. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I'm living by faith in the Son of God. There's a sense now in which I have this almost disconnectedness from even myself, my sin in me. I'm still all one. But now I look and I, I don't, I love those commandments. When I'm thinking rightly, I love those commandments. I'm a slave to Jesus. Um, he frees the heart from sin. When God saves the sinner, the first place that he goes to work on, guys, he goes to work on your inner man. He goes to work on your heart. That's where bondage to sin exists. That's where the hardness of heart is. That's where the, the slowness to believe is, right? That's where the quickness to establish self-made religion is nurtured. But by the grace of God, your heart was able to hear another voice over the voice of sin in your life, and you could hear God's voice. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you actually became obedient from the heart to something else. You were a slave over here, obeying only one thing, but now, by God's grace, 
You're over here obeying the teaching that you've been committed to. Something happened when God came to you in the call of the gospel. You were able to hear a voice outside of your old master that you were never able to hear before. And a new master called you out and he committed you to his own teachings in the gospel, in the word of God. And you became a slave to him in those words. Praise God, you were able to hear another voice. That voice that's here, right? Um, by God's grace, he switched our heart's allegiance. We, came, we became obedient from the heart. He switched our heart's allegiance. He enlightened our hearts. He cleansed them by faith, and we found obedience from the heart to be possible. I can actually obey God from my inner man. What on earth did he do? Well, let me show you what he did. Uh, verse Six, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. See, that's how bad it was. Guys, that's how bad this condition was. God says, let me think, what should I do with this? Should I put a Band-Aid on it? No, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm somehow going to crucify that with my son. Killed him. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Why? In order that our body of sin might be done away with. And you might say, oh, wait a minute, that sounds like heaven. Because that's what my body of sin will be done away with. But in what sense, Paul tells us, in this sense, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So this is what he did. He did away with the body of sin in the sense that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to him. What good news. You were slaves to sin. You became obedient from the heart. That's a very comforting truth. God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. Number four, Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. Scott, yes? Uh, quick question on Romans 6. Yeah. So the way, it, the way it's worded, it mm-hmm. sounds as if it's optional for me to become obedient and not something that is like... Yeah, um, if you read the rest of the chapter, you will find out that there are uh, commands given there uh, of what that obedience looks like. Um, I can take you back to verse um, 11, where the first imperative shows up. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. You want to you fight sin? Start there. And say, I'm dead to it. I'm dead to the enslaving call of sin. Um, Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. That's not contradictory to becoming obedient from the heart. That's what becoming obedient from the heart looks like. You do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Next command, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but imperative, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and present your members as instruments of righteousness and so forth. You can keep working through there. It's not optional. I mean, he has said all of that, and then he says you became obedient from the heart. That's his description. Does that make sense? Number four, Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. Ephesians chapter three, we'll look at Paul's great prayer here. Verse 14. 
This is crazy what he says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, verse 14, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, so that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I don't even know what that means. What does it mean to be filled up to all the fullness of God? I mean, how do you, where does Paul get this language? Where has he been? What has he seen that he would say, this is how I pray for you? Guys, do we, are we, we're living like down here on the carpet fibers. I mean, he has been up someplace high and he's looking at something that if we don't come to this word, we won't set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I mean, these are prayers that we need to be praying for ourselves. But what I want to focus you in on is verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Question for you. Who's he writing to in Ephesians? So then what? If that's true, guys, then why on earth is he saying... Here's why I'm praying for you, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's asking that of believers. He's talking about believers. How does that work? Do you see the conundrum? That's really not there. I'm trying to pretend like there's one. Right? So, what's what's going on here? He's writing to believers. Guys, this is beyond conversion into the new creation, into the Christian life. This Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith is not the original indwelling of Christ at conversion that he is describing. We are not to pray as believers that somehow Christ would for the first time indwell our hearts. That doesn't even make sense. But rather, we are to pray for a richer, deeper practical indwelling of Christ here. The, the, the verb that Christ may dwell is an intensified verb for dwelling. It, it was the word that they would use for not a temporary dwelling like in a tent, but more of a long-standing, settled, home kind of dwelling. Let me give you an example of two other times Paul used this word. Go to Colossians 1, real quick, one nineteen. Here's what he says. Here's the same verb to dwell being used there. Colossians 1.19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in him. God was pleased that all of the fullness of, of deity would dwell in Christ. Go to chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Uh, guys, that's not... God saying, you know, um, for a temporary period of time, I was pleased to have my deity pitch a tent in Jesus. So how at home was the deity of God, the fullness of God in Jesus? How at home was, was it? At home. Ah, this is where I live. Jesus, the fullness of God. God wasn't renting a hotel for a night to put his deity in it. So I'll just do it for a little bit. Very, very much at home. It's a perfect fit. And that's the way Christ's practical daily indwelling is to be like within us. In Ephesians 3 verse 17, I pray this so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And like 
His original indwelling comes by faith through grace. This practical indwelling comes also by and through faith. Ongoing trust in Jesus. As you grow in your trust in Jesus, Jesus increasingly dwells in your heart and makes your heart his home. He feels at home in your life. Guys, Christ dwells in you positionally if you are in Christ. But what kind of a residence does he find your heart to be for him on a daily basis? How at home is he in your heart? You see, that's what Paul is praying. And notice what he said right before that in verse 17. Here's what I pray. I pray that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. You know why? You're going to need my power. You need the power of God in you so that Christ can be at home in you. It's an amazing prayer to pray um, that Christ would be at home. It's a comforting truth. Christ makes himself at home. Lastly, number five, Christ establishes hearts without blame in holiness. First Thessalonians 3, Christ establishes hearts without blame in holiness. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Here's Paul's prayer again. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. He wants to get back to the Thessalonians. He only had a short time with him. He had to leave on the run because he was being persecuted by the Jews. And he says, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you for this purpose so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Verse 13 is what we want to zero in on. He wants to make their hearts strong or settled, established. Well, in what sense? Well, without blame. Your heart needs to be established. Your inner man needs to be established without any blame. And you put it positively, your heart needs to be established in holiness. Well, um, where? Well, what I'm praying, Paul says, is that this would be the case before our God and Father. So not just here, but before God, in God's presence, before God our Father. That's where your heart needs to be really settled and strong without blame and in holiness. Well, well when will that be? Verse 13. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. That's when. That's in, in, in all of this is in connection with, I pray that your love would cause you to increase and abound, or that God, the Lord would cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. You know what this looks forward to? This looks forward to our glorification. When is that going to happen? When is Jesus going to come with all of his saints? It's going to come here. I think it's the rapture for us. And at that point, he's saying, here's what I want. I want your heart to be established. That's when you will be ushered into the presence of God our Father. It's when Jesus comes. Your heart must be established. That's glorification. When he ushers you into that glorious, unmixed condition. So think about this. From conversion all the way to glorification, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit are active within you at the heart level. They are powerful in you at the heart level. 
God himself commits to you at the heart level from start to finish. Notice each of these comforting truths are about what God does for you at the heart level and not what you do for you at the heart level. God enlightens your heart. God cleanses the heart through faith. God frees the heart. Christ makes himself at home in your heart. And Christ establishes the heart for future glorification. Listen, guys, the gospel and what God does to save a sinner and to keep a sinner all the way to the end is all about God and what he does as he creates a new heart and a new inner man, a new makes you into a new creature in Christ. Guys, where would your hearts be? Where would your inner man be without Jesus, without God, without the spirit of God? Your heart would be hard and your heart would be unbelieving. And your heart, if it did think about being religious, here's what it would do. It would only be religious in a way that could never be near to God. And this is what God had to do to change your heart. And this is what God does to secure your heart all of the way to the end. He enlightens your heart. He cleanses your heart. He frees your heart. He makes himself at home in your heart. And he establishes your heart for the day when Christ comes. I think he's got things covered pretty well at the heart level for you, does he not? So then what do we do? Guys, when you see God laboring over your heart like this to this extent, even right now he is, what should our response be watching God labor over our hearts like this? I love it. Worship. Absolutely. And how do we do that? We do that by laboring over our hearts as well, bringing it before God's word. You take care of your heart and you bring that heart that God is laboring over and you bring it to the word of God so that it can meet with, once again, that glorious and wonderful and compassionate and merciful God who loves you like he does. You bring yourself before this word. How can God labor over your heart to the degree that he does, has, is, and continue will to do? How can he do that and then us not do anything with our hearts. But just let them go days, days without the word, without prayer. Guys, we can't do that. Thank God that what we do with our hearts, uh, what we will be does not hinge entirely upon us. If, 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 guys, if I got myself in and if I'm required to keep myself, I'm in, I'm in a world hurt. It is God. But God says, put your fingerprints on this too. I got, I got you. Put your fingerprints on this. Sanctification, spiritual disciplines have to be active in your life. God has labored over your heart. Labor over your own heart as well. Not to save yourself. Not to improve your standing with him. You can't. But so that he might dwell in your heart through faith in a richer way. Let's pray. Okay. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work in us in such a way that, um, Lord, we would want to labor over these hearts that you are laboring over as well. First, we just thank you that um, we were in darkness, but you gave us your light.
so that we might see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And we give thanks to you that our hearts have been cleansed, not by religious works that we did, but our hearts were cleansed by faith, by your grace. And we give thanks to you that um, you freed our hearts from sin and we found ourselves obedient from the heart to you. Father, now our our prayer would be that you would give us strength so that our faith would be stronger, that your son might dwell and really be at home in our hearts. God, what a difference that would make in our homes. If, If we were men, if we were husbands, if we were fathers, if we were roommates that your son Jesus was was glad to dwell in what what an impact the, those around us would 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 have from us by your grace and for your glory oh god please dwell in our hearts through faith in a richer and deeper way and father we are counting on you establishing our hearts all the way to the end Oh God, please do not make us making it to the end be entirely upon us. We know that we must persevere. We know that we must be the ones to run. We are the ones who must endure. And God, we want to, but we need your strength. And we're counting on you establishing us in holiness without blame before your very presence at the coming of Jesus with all of the saints. Oh, how we long for that day, God. May May we rejoice today because we are not what we once were, but may we long and crave for the day when Jesus comes. Make us more like him today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.